For the past two weeks, we've been going through uh, what's known as John's Prologue. It's basically the intro to John's Gospel. And every every year around Advent season, I want to do. I like to try to kind of do something Advent-like and have sort of a Christmassy theme to all of it. Uh, one of the reasons I picked John this year is because John's Gospel starts unlike any other Gospel account. It's weird, to be honest with you. He doesn't start with uh, a baby laid in a manger or anything like that. He starts with something like this. God, who was at the beginning, who spoke the world into existence, came amongst us. That's the way he describes the arrival of Jesus. Where other people look at it from kind of a ground level, like, oh, this is what it looked like to all the people who are observing. Here, John takes sort of a, a, a God's eye view of it and explains the idea of heaven come down to earth. And so for the last two weeks, we've been, we've been in this for the next uh, we've got three more lessons in this. We're slow walking through this prologue. And one of the things that's really interesting is that, uh, as a lot of commentators have mentioned, John's intro basically introduces all the themes he's going to pick up on through the entire rest of his gospel. So you'll see that I draw a lot from throughout John's gospel because he's introducing themes that he kind of like teases out more as we go along. So if you haven't been with us, I want to kind of give you a quick recap so that you're all on the same page. Basically, John begins by introducing us to this term that both the Jews and the Greeks would have been familiar with, which he calls the word, or if you use the original language, the logos. And so he starts out with this idea, in the beginning was the logos, the word. And he starts to unpack and basically turn this idea on its head. And so where they would have maybe thought of the logos or the word as being something like uh, more akin to like the, the force in Star Wars or something like this, an impersonal force, John unpacks it further, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, implying that there's a relationship between God and the Word. But then he takes it a step further and says, and the Word was God. Like this, this thing that we call you call the Logos, not only is it personal, but it's divine. And so he unpacks this idea for them, and then we see that, this, that the Word is eternal. It's already present at the beginning of time. And then second, that the word is a person having fellowship with God before creation. Therefore, this concept is not an it, but a he. For God is a person and not a force. Third, this word is recognized as being God as well. The Jews, by the way, were staunch monotheists. I mean, they, believe in, they believed in one God. And so they did not understand this word to be like God number two or God junior. Rather, they understood that the word was the true God whom all things were created by. So this word, whose name is yet to be given. Now, I, I'm not giving spoilers away by saying, and the word was Jesus. You guys already probably figured that out, and I've already told you. So this is how he explains Jesus, but he hasn't given the name yet. So if you're the author, if you're, or if you're the author, you realize the reveal of who this person is is yet to come. And so this word is said to bring revelation from God, which leads to salvation. Or as John put it, Light and life. This light is attested to by the presence of a witness, a man named John, different than John the author, by the way, John the Baptist here, who came to point people to the light of salvation. That's the idea we begin with. However, though the word was God itself come down, God himself come down to dwell with his people, his own creation did not recognize him. 
This brings us to our discussion today. So as we look at the passage for today, this is what I want to show you. I like to give you uh, a big idea. So if you remember nothing else about this discussion, I want you to remember this. It's that Christ was rejected so that he could receive us into his family. As we're going to see today, God came to the people who who should have embraced him like family. They rejected him. But the result of that rejection is that people like you and I would be accepted into God's family. So with that said, do me a favor. We get a little old school around Advent season. Please stand for the reading of the word. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And here's our passage for today. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay. So, we begin with this statement in verse 11, which resembles that which we ended on last week. So remember, last week we ended on verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, 11 picks up this same theme, but it puts its own little twist on it. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, is John just repeating the same statement that he did last week? That's possible. The Bible often uh, repeats things for emphasis. However, there's more to it than that. See, verse 10 looks at the word, Jesus, and his relationship to his creation, the world. Verse 11 has a little more of a narrow focus to it. See, notice that John writes that the word came to his own. Well, who were his own? Uh, John is referring specifically to the Jewish people here. After all, they were the people of God. They were God's special people. God chose uh, to reveal himself to the Jewish people. If you've been with us for uh, the better part of last year uh, or this year, we've been uh, going through Genesis. And what we talked about is, basically, there are the Jewish people trace their lineage back to certain key people, men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was, named, who was renamed Israel. And as you recall, as Genesis presents it, right after Adam and Eve fell from grace, right after Adam and Eve uh, turned away from God, ate the forbidden fruit, there's this prophecy that comes up, this promise. God says that he will send a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. Even in Genesis chapter 3, this is the earliest hint of a savior that we find in scripture. 
And so as we go on throughout the Old, uh, the Old Testament and specifically through Genesis, what we find is we keep asking ourselves, who is this seed? Who is this descendant? And then we find out that this descendant will come from the lineage of a man named Abraham. But Abraham is not a perfect guy, far from it, as we've shown. And so Abraham is not the savior, the promised seed that was to come. Abraham has children. He has, he has a son, Isaac, and then he has, uh, he, that Isaac has a son, Jacob, who becomes uh, the father of the nation of Israel. However, all these people are flawed people. All these people fall short of being the savior that can actually rescue people from the pain of sin and death and suffering. So finally, we move throughout the, New, the Old Testament, and all these people that we might think this could be the one fall short. And we arrive here in John's Gospel, and finally, here we are, the Savior has arrived, the person that they've been waiting for, the one who is promised from long, long ago, the one who is going to come and save people from the, way, from the guilt of their sins. And what's the response this long-awaited Savior gets? When he comes into the world. Rejection. See. What makes this rejection so heinous. Is that all these people. Should have known better. If there was anyone else who should have known better. That this was the savior. It was the people of the people of Israel. Why? Because they had the testimony of God. They had the Bible itself. Pointing this stuff out. Uh. They were his special people, the people who he revealed himself to in a unique way. The people who he said, I will make a covenant relationship with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. After all, they were the ones entrusted, entrusted with the scriptures, the law and the prophets. Jesus highlights this idea when dialoguing with some of the religious elite in Israel. In John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. Jesus is having a conversation. This is what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, that is the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says that the scriptures, all Old and New Testament, point to him. We talked about witnesses last week. Well, here's a witness that points to Jesus as the Messiah. The Old Testament. I have often pointed this out in our studies, by the way, when we've gone through Genesis and uh, other books, that all, even Genesis is pointing us to the message and the themes of the gospel, uh, to long for this Savior who is to come. But this should tell us something. If Jesus came to his own people, the people who were given the Bible, the same people who would look out and see him doing miracles. The same people who would hear him teaching the way you're hearing me teach right now. Except, you know, like good. Like he would go out and teach. And he said, they said he would talk with an authority that no one else had. They had all this witness. And yet rather than receiving Jesus, they rejected him. That should tell us something from the get-go. That it's not for lack of evidence that people reject Jesus. They had plenty of proofs. His people had plenty of proofs. You didn't have, so you might meet someone who has to be convinced that the Bible is God's word, that it's divinely authored, but not the Jewish people. They already were in on that. They said, yep, this is God's word. Jesus says, it all points to me, and they missed it. Why? Is it because they were somehow just, you know, too, too critical, too logical, or something like that? No, not at all. Rather... The reason they rejected this 
is because they didn't like the Messiah when they actually met him. They didn't actually like the message he was bringing. As it turns out, however, the fact that they rejected Jesus ends up being further proof that he is exactly who he claimed to be. Let me give you an example. John chapter 12, verse 37 through 40. Jesus, uh, John makes a comment about uh, Jesus' ministry. He says, Though he had done so many signs before them, that is, miracles and all these things, they did not believe in him, so that the words spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what was heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So he says this was all to fulfill what Isaiah had spoken of beforehand. Long, long ago. And then John explains the meaning. He says, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even of the authorities, believe, even of the, uh, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they w- would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? Verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory. So here we have the prophets of the Old Testament seeing God seated on his throne, by the way. That's the prophecy. And he says, John says, that's Jesus. And just as Isaiah was to go out and call people to repentance that wouldn't listen, so Jesus comes to his own people He says, turn, trust in me, come follow me, and they reject him. Why? Because he says, basically, they wanted the glory, the credit that you get from people, more than the credit that comes from God. Guys, that's a sad thing. It's a sad thing to look at at and say, I care more, to be honest with you, it's a sad thing if I, look at, if I look at my life and I say, I care what, what you think about me more than what God thinks about me. God's called us to more than that. It shows that our perspective is absolutely skewed. However, despite this, there was still a remnant, a group of people amongst this uh, who heard Jesus' message, a group of Jewish people who would hear John's message. Of them, John writes, but to all, verse 12, back to chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, John doesn't want anyone to miss out on this. So he clarifies his statement about receiving Jesus. Jesus came to his own, his own family, the people who should have most recognized him. And they said, no, we don't want nothing to do with you. But he says, but there are some who amongst them who did receive him. And how do we receive him? Well, John clarifies. He says, but to all who did receive him. And then he explains, who believed in his name. See, you receive Jesus by having faith, by believing in him. You put your trust in him. He doesn't want anyone to miss out on this. And so if you're listening to this message right now and you say, look, I don't want to miss out on Jesus. If the people of, if the Jewish people, the people of Israel could miss Jesus' message. And trust me, guys. I guarantee you, there are people who were better Bible teachers, Bible students in Israel, probably than any of us in this room. If they could have all that witness and still miss out on Jesus, I don't want to miss out on it. 
What do I do? Well, here's the answer. You put your trust in Christ alone to save you. We receive him by faith. But John doesn't stop there. See, he tells us not only how we receive him, he tells us the reward for receiving him. At the tail end of verse 12, he says, To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's something here that could be missed if you weren't a Jewish reader about this. See, the Israelites already thought they were the children of God. And so they would have been like, what? That's us. Like, we're already in there. We're already in the club, right? What John is saying is that it's not the physical descendants of Abraham who who were the children of God, but those who, like Abraham before them, placed their faith in God, who are welcomed into his family. See, there's a reason that the author calls those of faith the children. In John's writing, he distinguishes between Jesus being the one and only Son of God and those who believe in Jesus as being his children. Paul takes up a similar, uh, similar uh, style, but he differentiates between Jesus being uh, the, only legi- the only son and us being the adopted sons and daughters of God. And so there's this idea that when you place your trust in Jesus, you are adopted into God's household. You become part of the family. God, and here's the good news, guys. God's the best adopted dad anyone could ever hope for. Even if you, even if you had, I had a great dad. But even if you didn't have a present dad at all, or you had a terrible dad, God is not like that. God is a good father. He loves his children. He cares for us. He disciplines us when we're out of line, and he blesses us and provides for us as well. He teaches us to be mature men and women of faith. So he goes on to describe, he says, look, if you receive him, God welcomes you into his house. You're part of the family. But then he goes on to describe what sort of children we are. He says that we are given the privilege to become children of God, verse 13, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he points out three ways that you won't get into God's family, basically, here. You won't get in because of your blood, you won't get in because of the will of the flesh, and you won't get in because of the will of man. He says you are not born into God's family by virtue of your bloodline first. Once again, this is, some, this is pointing to the people of Israel. They would have assumed, well, I was born an Israelite, so I must be in God's family, right? I must be one of the, one of the favored ones. Uh, Let me be real honest with you guys. Let me tell you how that relates to us. No one's born a Christian. I got three kids here right now. I love them deeply. None of them are Christians just by the fact that they are part of my bloodline. To be honest with you guys, being a gimmer is probably a more sign that you need salvation than a sign that you are saved, okay? So my, so my family name doesn't get them any closer. Your family name doesn't make your kids any more saved. But this is good news, however, because it means God's adoption is, just, is not just for a small group of people. It's for everyone who will look to Jesus for life. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus didn't come, just to, sa- Jesus didn't come to save less. He came to save more. As Revelation says it, God has saved for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
No nationality holds the reins on salvation. The hope of salvation is for everyone who will receive the message of the Son of God. Then John adds two other caveats. So we know you're not getting in by your blood. You were born into this house. That doesn't mean you're a part of the family. You've got to receive Jesus. And then he adds two other caveats about this adoption that Jesus gives. He says it's not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. This is a way of saying that not of, it is not of human effort nor of human desire. The first part's easy for most of us to grasp. If you've been with us for some time, I hope there's one thing I've hammered deep into you, which is that you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot work your way into God's family. But the third reason, not of the will of man, should humble us dead in our tracks. See, we live in a time where people think you can do pretty much anything if you just desire it, right? That's, we, live in the, we, live in the, we live in the generation where all you got to do is want it enough and you can go out and grab it. Jesus says that's not how it works with this family. The world is full of self-help books that will teach you you can do anything if you just want it enough. But according to, to John, there, there is at least one thing that desire alone can't bring you. So then that brings us to this. This all leads us down a pathway to ask a basic question. How can any of us be saved? Like, how does anyone get in if that's if 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 John basically shoots down all our possibilities, all our confidence? How then does anyone get in? Well, if you would turn basically a page or two in your Bible to John chapter three, where we pick up on this theme again. I can hear I wait for the sound of. Pages to stop. There's an, old, uh, there's an old preacher who called it Baptist air conditioning when you hear all the pages turned together. <laughs> John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There's a religious leader, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. Uh, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, we saw that Jesus came to his own and that his own did not receive him. Jesus says that the only way someone can see the kingdom of God and therefore be a part of that kingdom is if they have a new birth. See, Nicodemus doesn't understand this, so he asks further. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? No. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says the only way you are going to be a part of God's family is if God, through His Spirit, gives you new birth, new life. That is to say that it is only something that comes through divine intervention. Flesh can only give birth to flesh, but God's Spirit alone can grant the spiritual birth which is necessary to become a part of God's kingdom. See, God alone has the power to grant sonship. It's the right of the father to adopt a son. So this raises another question. 
if it has if it's if it's absolutely absent from me how do i know that i'm born of god like he takes away all the things right your bloodline your effort your desires all those things he says that's not what makes you born again god's what makes you born again well then that makes me go well how do i know i'm actually born again i want to be certain of these things right if there's anything you need to be certain of this is it well john's actually already addressed it How do you know that you are born again? You receive Jesus. Do you believe that that he is God come in the flesh to save men? If so, the Bible says that you didn't just figure this out. You didn't come to this conclusion because you were so clever and so smart. Rather, the reason you came to that conclusion and that realization is because God has given you new birth. He's given you eyes to see. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, beca- he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus Christ came to give you what only God could give, a place in his family. Now, some people get caught, on the wrong, caught up on the wrong things, I'll be honest with you. They're worried about all these things. Well, if this to happen, what, which came first and this and that. I love the way the pastor, uh, theologian and writer Don Carson puts it. He writes it this way. If you look at the way John puts it, he says, These verses refrain from spelling out the connection between faith and new birth. Those who receive the word are identical with those who believe in his name. And they are identical with those who are born of God. In other words, those who receive Jesus are born again. And those who are born again receive Jesus. The two aren't at odds. They always go together. So if God is stirring up something inside you today, hear me, guys. It's a sign that he, is, that he is opening your eyes to see something new. So what do you do? How do we respond to this? Well, let me go back to a statement from earlier, a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah said, Their eyes have been blinded lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Well, if you flip that around, that's exactly how we receive that healing. We see with our eyes, we understand with our heart, and we turn to God. See understand, and turn. That's what you do. You see, we understand what God is telling us. We are sinners and we need salvation. We see that that he has offered up a salvation to those who will receive it. And so we turn from our sin and we receive it. That gives us new life. And then what do we do? That's what we do. We turn and are healed. When we turn away from ourselves and we turn to God... He is the one who heals us. He takes away the guilt of our sin so that you and I can experience the joy of sonship. So that we can feel the embrace of being part of his family. If God, what my, my statement to you guys this week is really simple. If God is opening your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, don't look away. See, understand, and turn to him. That's what I have for you guys. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. By your grace and mercy, we are born again through the power of your Holy Spirit so that when we receive you, we are welcomed into your family. God, whatever our past Whatever 
family situations are like prior to this, we have this confidence that we are welcomed in and dearly loved as your children. God, as we, we see and understand the weight of the gospel and as we turn to you, heal us. Change us from the inside out. Make us to look less like our sin and more like the sons and daughters you have called us to be. God, we thank you for this great mercy, that we sh- this privilege, that we should be called the children of God. As your children, let us not shy away from you. Let us run to you. Let us trust in you with all things. For you are a good father who can be trusted. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who makes all this possible. Amen.